840 here. So you may have heard the news. Donald Trump is posing a threat that democracy is failing. So many of the smartest people I know believe that Donald Trump is a threat to our democracy. So you don't hear them engage with, well, what is democracy? Democracy is the will of the people. So most people want a stop to illegal immigration. I would suspect that most Americans would want immigration restriction. So there are all sorts of areas where Donald Trump is far more democratic than the elites who are condemning him as a threat to democracy. So who decides what constitutes democracy? I was having a discussion with an academic. So you've got a progressive theorist will say the people and those of us on the right will say the the people, right? So is Donald Trump and the, the populist right? I think that's what's going on. Donald Trump and the populist right are a threat to their idea of democracy, right? It's not that Donald Trump wants to give the people what they want and that Donald Trump was legally elected to give the people what they want, right? And you hear people say, our democracy, really? So this is a democracy they think they own, not the democracy of the people. This is the democracy of the ruling elites. So when smart people talk about our democracy, what they really mean is our democratic institutions as opposed to what people vote for or equality. So these democratic ideals are literally anti-democratic. And uh, I've been reading a lot of academic uh, Stephen Turner on this. He's a philosopher of the social sciences. But here's a typical New York Times op-ed. Well, it's not a typical op-ed, but the theme is typical. Trump poses a test of democracy is failing by Thomas Edsel. And I love this columnist. And he asks, how is it that Donald Trump stands a reasonable chance of winning a second term in 2024? Because after all, Donald Trump has abused power. He's broken the rules. He has rejected the outcome of elections that he's lost. And you're saying, Forty, tell me what the political scientists at Yale University say. And there was one, Milan Svalik, who published a paper in 2019, Polarization versus Democracy. Some answers here. Hey, Forty, do you still take condoms to synagogue? No, that only happened once. It was a mistake. And it wasn't an Orthodox synagogue. It was a conservative synagogue. It was an event at Sinai Temple. And and I went to pay for this event. It was a singles event. It wasn't on the Shabbat, okay? And I, I went to pay for the for the event. And I reached in my pocket and I put out a $10 bill. And as I was putting down the $10 bill, for some strange, incomprehensible reason, there was a condom with it. And the woman who was there taking admission, she said, oh, no, I'm sorry, we can't accept this. As payment, but that's like that's totally old forty, man. I, I, I would never, God forbid, engage in that sort of behavior. So, it is preserving democratic institutions a top priority for voters? No, I don't think it is. I think what people mainly care about is the protection of their way of life and the protection of people like themselves and the protection of their interests. I think people are much more interested interested in their interests than they are in abstract issues of democratic theory.
So in sharply polarized electorates, which is what we have in much of the West today, many voters who value democracy are willing to sacrifice fair democratic competition for the sake of electing politicians who champion their interests. Well, that makes common sense, right? What's more important to you, your interests or abstract ideals? So when punishing a leader's authoritarian tendencies requires a voting for a platform party or person that his supporters detest, many will find this too high a price to pay. So an exacerbated partisan competition presents aspiring authoritarians with a structural opportunity. They can undermine democracy and get away with it. Well, what about the Black Lives Matter riots and protests that disrupted life as we, we knew it? And that segment of the Democratic left that has argued for, for decades, no justice, no peace. We don't care about the rule of law. We don't care about the results of elections. We will make life miserable through criminal behavior unless you give us what we want. That seems to me to be anti-democratic. Things like the L.A. riots. So we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of the L.A. riots, right? They seem to me fairly anti-democratic. We're going to burn down this town because we don't like the decision of a jury. What about bringing in massive numbers of people through immigration? Say just legal immigration. So most Americans didn't, didn't favor massively expanding immigration intake starting in 1965 to larger and larger amounts of non-Europeans, right? This was brought in, in all likelihood, against the will of the people and sustained against the will of the people with the tacit cooperation of the two major political parties in England, in Australia, in the United States, in Europe. They've, generally speaking, the major political parties in the West have agreed to take questions of immigration off the table. So you can't really vote on it until recently, really, until the age of, of Donald Trump. So the experts said, hey, we need to have a tacit agreement on high immigration intake. This should not be a matter for political discussion. So just like our modern politics, our modern forms of, of democracy developed as a reaction to the religious wars in Europe in the 17th century, a reaction to, in particular, the German Civil War, right? So we have, ever, ever since the 18th century, the increasing neutralization of politics. For example, immigration ha has been largely neutralized as a political issue until, say, the last last seven years. So COVID, right? Did, did people get to vote on COVID restrictions? No, this was the rule of experts. Now, was there great wailing and gnashing of teeth that, that our very democracy is at stake, that our democracy is being perverted because we're allowing experts to decide questions and take away the rule of the people? No, you didn't hear that. So I have no doubt the Republicans and, and Donald Trump uh, it, to, to varying degrees represent a threat to democracy, just as the left represents a threat to democracy. I don't think Trump and, and the populist right are any more of a threat to democracy. What Elites mean when they accuse the populist right of being a threat to democracy is a threat to our democracy. It's a threat to our institutions. So here is favorite academic of mine, philosopher Stephen Turner. Rule anymore. This is similar to the, these problems of liberalism. Okay, so if we look at democracy in relation to liberalism, it seems as though, and even Dahl uh, acknowledges this, you need a bunch of auxiliary machinery. And it's got to include more or less these standard liberal uh, ideas. 
Uh, and these are all ideas involving the form of, uh, forms of a, a state. Uh, but this machinery is not necessarily popular. So these are sort of rules of the game that uh, have to be accepted by the people, but the people may or may not uh, choose to accept them. They don't have a democratic justification directly. Um, they depend on things like people's belief in the Constitution, or their rights, or uh, in various other things, but they're not based in a direct sense on the people or the will of the people. People like Dewey were very hostile to uh, things like constitutionalism and these things like natural rights doctrines. Okay, back to this New York Times op-ed by Thomas Edsel. So he quotes these academic researchers saying that uh, we can no longer rely on voters to serve as a roadblock against authoritarianism. So if Donald Trump was an authoritarian, he was a really lousy authoritarian, very weak and wimpy authoritarian. So the there's only a small fraction of Americans who prioritize democratic principles in their electoral choices. Yes, people vote their interests. They don't vote for abstract principles. And the more polarized the situation, the fewer people who are willing to prioritize democratic principles. Uh, this is just as true for the right as for the left. So Americans have a solid understanding of what democracy is and is not, but only a small fraction of Americans prioritize democratic principles in their electoral choices when to do so goes against their partisan identification or favorite policies. So only about 3.5% of voters realistically punish violations of democratic principles. So what what are the democratic principles here? To To have some concerns about the growing power of the administrative state and the growing power of experts to make decisions without any democratic check against them? So another major factor driving this scare about democracy among our elites, and I'm not anti-elite. I'm not anti-populist either. So my self-perception is that I'm 50-50. Some of the time I side with the populists, some of the times I side with the elite. I, I don't think any any particular faction is blessed by the, the will of heaven. So there is a perception among many whites in America and whites in Europe, their status at the top of the political hierarchy is eroding. So when proponents of expanded, more diverse democracy gain power, those who have a stake in preserving their way of life will be willing to defy democratic norms to stay in power, right? People want to preserve their interests, whether they're white or black or Jewish or gay or straight. So in the 1960s, you had a coalition of Northern Democrats and Republicans who were able to overcome these anti-democratic forces to pass civil rights legislation. Well, was civil rights legislation in 1965, was that really small d democratic? Was that the overwhelming will of the people? I'm not so sure about that. So a majority of House Republicans voted not to accept the results of the last election. Well, did a majority of House Democrats accept the results of the 2016 election? A large number did not. So when Democrats were up in arms that the 2016 election was stolen, that's just because they were hyper-concerned about the strength of our democracy. So what about a future scenario in which Democrats achieve a decisive and sustainable national majority? 
Well, the Republican Party will then be led by the most illiberal radicals, right? And so the Republican Party will will be led into even more radical insurrectionism, according to these elites. So there's no feasible solution to the current crisis within the two-party system, given the escalating polarization, the extremist trajectory of the Republican Party. Well, you can make a pretty good argument that the Republicans have generally shifted to the right over the past 30 years, but Democrats have shifted to the left over the past 30 years. So all this talk about the radicalized Republicans seems to ignore the, the radicalization of the left. So these uh, academics argue that uh, we've got a degradation of democratic norms, right? We've got a hostile subversion of democratic institutions and values that they seek to serve. Notice they don't want to say really that it's a, a threat on democracy. It's a subversion of our democratic institutions, which frequently tend to be anti-democratic. See, they don't want to argue that they are often against the will of the people because that's, that's the very epitome of democracy. And I'm not one who believes that the will of the people is always right or, or usually right. So we've got an erosion of democracy, now self-evidently a global phenomenon, right? So for all those who think that uh, democratic liberalism is just the inevitable wave of the future, not so, not so clear-cut, right? That the world has steadily become less democratic and less liberal over the past 14 years. In the name of democracy. So he saw that, that these auxiliary mechanisms that in some sense were supports of democracy could also serve as uh, enemies of democracy, at least in a sort of abstract sense of there being a will of the people or something democratic that goes beyond just voting. To serve um, as, so in any case, these, these kinds of um, uh, auxiliary measures tend to generate these uh, anomalies like the uh, no freedom, um, for the enemy's freedom. But if we, if we sort of begin to look at this as, in, um, uh, as, as a system, more sociologically rather than just as political theory, you can see... So that can sound ridiculous. No enemies for the enemies of freedom. No freedom for the enemies of freedom. But if you want to preserve something in a group, in a community, in a nation, you do usually have to put some limits on your enemies. All right? So that's inevitable. All right? You will have some restrictions on those who want to destroy your way of life, right? The Constitution, for example, is not a death warrant. If preserving your people, preserving your nation requires violating the Constitution, I think most people would be willing to go along with that. See that uh, liberalism and liberal democracy is actually a pretty intricate and fragile system. It really depends on people honoring the spirit of uh, the arrangements, has to tolerate a lot of political disagreement, uh, where there is discretion, the... the uh, um, bureaucrats and office holders need to be more or less politically neutral. That is, they don't use So I'm looking at a terrific essay here by Stephen Turner from 2021. It's called The Ideology of Anti-Populism and the Administrative State. So he, he notes the people, the state, and expertise form an unstable triad. So expertise is when you have experts who know far more than ordinary people can possibly know 
and power is delegated to them under the theory that they will be neutral, such as our public health experts who who designed our reaction to COVID-19. Now, I think by and large, our public health experts did an above average job, Did that our elites did a solid job in responding to COVID-19. There were certainly flaws. There were certainly contradictions. There, there were certainly mistakes. But overall, I think that our experts did a, a solid job responding to COVID-19. But there is no way of stabilizing this triad of the people, the state, and expertise. But you can't ignore the problem also. So you're constantly going to be juggling between the power of elites, uh, of elite expertise, the power of the people, and the power of the administrative state. And for all those on the populist right who decry the deep state and the administrative state, you have to come up with what are the alternatives, right? Where have we seen alternatives to the administrative state for first world nations? So populism is really a belief in the virtue of common people, right? So populism is not a regime, is not an order. It, it says that the common people are pretty good, right? That's kind of the essence of populism. Now, the problem for ostensibly democratic regimes, right, and for our ruling elites and the, the media elites and academic elites who say Donald Trump and right-wing populism is a threat to democracy, well, hey, Rodney Martin, what's going on, man? Hey, Luke. Uh, I saw your invite. I was uh, watching you, and I uh, thought I'd just jump in for a little bit. Great. Sounds good, man. What, what's going on? What's, what's been capturing your attention? Well, you know, this whole poo-poo about democracy, I hear that's the, the leftist clarion call. They're going to ruin our democracy. Um, you know, they, they call the January 6th uh, uh, capital riots. It was a riot. Uh, uh, insurrection. But they also call the, uh, uh, the burning, the looting, the murdering, the raping that took place all in the summer of 2020, they, they call that something else. In fact, they endorsed it. They took the knee. Um, I don't think the left has any more credibility on the term democracy. In Russia, Vladimir Putin exercises what's called a controlled democracy because he just admits uh, what... Uh, the Democrats will only say, remember Hillary Clinton said it's good to have one position privately and another position publicly? Yeah. Um, that's what the Democrats believe. They want uh, the Russian model, actually, for all of their vitriol against the Russian system. That's what they've been working to impose in the United States, where you have a uh, controlled democracy. That means where they will determine what is what is good for you. They will determine who should be running for office. Thought it's interesting. They uh, they have gone to great lengths to go around the country in Arizona and uh, North Carolina to try to forbid candidates from even running, interfering in the Republican primary. Actually, trying to say that candidates, Republicans, can't even pick their own uh, nominees by citing a post Civil War statue, which was literally rendered moot when President Andrew Johnson granted a widespread clemency before he left office. So that, that is, you know, it's interesting. 
the precedent that they're using is invalid because it was it rendered moot. Uh, Alexander, the former vice president of the Confederacy, served in the uh, as the governor of Georgia and as a senator from Georgia after the Civil War, and a great many uh, other Confederate officers and higher ups served in Congress and in the Senate, and even as uh, governors of the respective states that were still under Union occupation, because the uh, uh, it was all rendered mute. President Johnson granted a uh, a blank clemency uh, pardon. Uh, to all of them. And so now the Democrats kind of dig this up to say, oh, they engaged in an insurrection. Well, you know, no court has bought it yet, either Republican judges or even Democratic judges. The most recent case was dismissed by a Barack Obama uh, appointee. Uh, it's interesting. If you can't beat them, you can't engage in democracy, then they will you know, use the control method to determine who gets on the ballot. Joseph Stalin once famously said, I don't care, uh, you know, who votes. I only care that I get to count the votes. And uh, this is just their way uh, to uh, uh, control, have a controlled democracy. Interestingly, this probably was, this was working back uh, in my latter days of university. They were, you've seen this, and there were still probably a, 25% group in the center, you know, it was probably 30, 30, you know, 40, 40 with a 20%. But now the battle lines have drawn uh, that it's, you know, probably a, you know, a 48, 48 loop with only 2% in the center. And, you know, those usually split evenly or don't show up to vote. So these tactics, I think, are hurting the Democrats in the long run, even with the 2020 election. Uh, lost by Trump, I think actually in the long term, it's going to serve to make the Democrats a coastal party. They will be a party of the left coast and uh, a uh, party of the uh, the East Coast. Um, so uh, we saw a great turnaround in Virginia, which was very interesting that the Republicans swept every single uh, statewide office and also took back the legislature and what the Democrats had put the man up the victory flag. So I don't think they have any credibility on the term democracy. It's their type of, uh, of democracy. And uh, to be honest, the Republicans have been, we've seen that with the Kevin McCarthy tapes, where he was going right along with them uh, to, uh, he wanted some of his own members of his own caucus uh, to be censored, had their Twitter account shut down, uh, et cetera. He was right in there with uh, uh, Liz Cheney uh, until it wasn't uh, convenient anymore. And the problem with the Republicans, the Democrats, that problem is going to solve itself in the midterm. They're going to get probably a 50-seat a bath. They're going to lose in spectacular form. 30 of them have already said they're not running uh, for re-election. And the remaining uh, uh, never-Trumper Republicans, uh, they're out. They've all quit throwing in the towel. So the biggest issue is, uh, what will the GOP do when they are given these large majorities in the House and probably a very solid working majority in the uh, in the Senate? It's kind of interesting. Remember, Bill Clinton said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Well, that's been the story of the GOP. They've been able to win and win spectacularly. Uh, they've lost when they've been punished by the voters. I think this election coming up is going to be a punishment election where the electorate is going to punish the Democrats 
and it's probably going to sit for a while. Uh, majority of these uh, House seats that gave them the majority of only about three or four uh, were marginal seats to begin with and uh, was a one-off probably, but uh, they don't have any credibility on democracy, uh, Luke, any more than conservatives or the GOP has uh, any, uh, any real uh, credibility in terms of uh, smaller government. It was George W. Bush that grew the government larger at any time since Lyndon B. Johnson. That was under George W. Bush. And uh, you know, Trump was hardly a fiscal conservative. Uh, when it comes to you know running up uh, uh, you know debt, and of course Biden just decided to outdo outdo Trump. And my final question is, how is Ukraine going to pay back the United States for all these billions that has been sent to them, or is that just going to be written off? Just going to be written off. Uh, it's it's thought to be in U.S. interest to weaken Russia. Well, that's a mistake. Uh, you know, we're in the same, I saw an excellent analogy, you know, during the eighties, Reagan's, uh, plan was to make the Soviet union spend and spend and spend, which they didn't have, you know, the deep pockets the U S did. Now I kind of see Russia making the United States spend, 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 spend. And now we see it's affected the GDP. We have record high inflation and, uh, interestingly in, uh, in, uh, California, they're going to raise the gas taxes when they're already paying six and seven dollars a gallon. So, you know, uh, I, I remember Biden and the Democrats saying, and the Republicans, of course, the neocons never, ever, ever uh, turn away from an effort to line the pockets of their uh, military industrial complex donors, that they were going to ruin the Russian economy. Well, Russia's found markets for its uh, for its oil. They're not. They're replicating the same thing other countries have done. Uh, I've not seen that this has any way helped our economy. In fact, I see. You know, if anything, it's going to be a with the old-fashioned pirate victory. Uh, you can claim you can claim a, a victory, but was it was the cost so much that it wasn't worth it to begin with? Do you have a favorite running for president in 2024, or least uh, least disliked uh, possibilities? Well, I don't know. You know, I, I'm having a hard time believing that the Democrats are going to let Biden run, especially, you know, his his his. it's obvious that he is uh, mentally diminished. He's not up to the job. And this would be let me tell you, Jimmy Carter had a better chance of winning in 1980 uh, against Reagan uh, than uh, Biden has in being elected in 2024. So it wouldn't be out of the realm to think that a group of his old friends from the Senate would go to him and ask him to stand down, uh, and he might well do it. The big question is, who do they replace him with? Kamala? She's uh, more detested than, than he is. And uh, so, I mean, who, you know, who, who do they have? Likewise, on the, on the Republican side, if Trump decides not to run, he's kind of teasing that, but I think ultimately he will. But if he doesn't, uh, I think their only logical choice is is DeSantis uh, uh, in in Florida, so uh, it, it's going to be rather uh, interesting. I think going into 2024, regardless of who the GOP uh, nominee is, they have a clear advantage because people, first of all, people don't care about Ukraine when they're having to spend 150 dollars 
uh, to gas up their SUVs and, uh, you know, a little less than 100 to gas up their smaller cars. So uh, it's going to be uh, interesting. They vote on that. Also, uh, you know, women are going to vote because they go to, they're going to vote on the economics. They're having to go to the grocery stores and they're seeing the costs uh, of goods when they go and buy clothes for the kids. So they see the price of beef go up. Uh, this is going to be, you know, remember the old saying, it's the economy, stupid. And for all of Biden's effort to blame Putin, it's not Putin's fault that Joe Biden wrecked the economy. He started from day one in terms of the gas prices when he influenced and cut U.S. domestic uh, supply, canceling pipelines and uh, rescinding uh, uh, leases. So, uh, you know, the Republicans have a shot. I, you know, I'm not 100 percent convinced yet that Trump is actually going to uh, is going to uh, run. I will say this. If it's Biden, if these group of Democrats, they don't do something about Biden, I think that will make Trump run. But if he has to face a fresh face, I think he's probably going to do some calculations and uh, and uh, and uh, probably opt out and hand it over to DeSantis. The, the strongest ticket on the GOP side is uh, is Trump and DeSantis. DeSantis is a young guy. He can run with Trump so Trump can you know, uh, win the rematch, and then he can run in 2028 and have two terms himself. That if, if, if I was DeSantis, that's what I would do. And I, it's not out of the realm, but he, even though they had a tiff a while back, a few weeks back or a month back, I, I think probably they've had that, they've had that discussion. Um, I, uh, it's, you know, their GOP has an issue in that uh, they can't just throw away uh Donald Trump supporters the way or taken for granted the way Jimmy Carter uh, took uh, Ronald Reagan support. I mean, Ted Kennedy supporters, a majority of Ted Kennedy supporters that supported Kennedy, the primary against Carter. Uh, it's a proven fact. They either stayed home or they held their nose and voted for Reagan. And now the GOP has the same dynamic. They have someone that just dominates the, politi the political sphere. And until Trump can't run again, meaning by constitutional term limits, uh, he's, it's, it's his nomination if he wants it. Then the Republicans are going to have to uh, 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 deal with it. I, uh, I'll go a step further. Trump should make a, uh, issue a press statement uh, and call for uh, the replacement of McCarthy. He cannot have these Judases working uh, or this you know fifth column working in the background uh, as they did uh, in his first term. Well, I think McCarthy is much more amenable to Trump and MAGA than, than Paul Ryan. I mean, Paul Ryan was diametrically opposed. Well, Paul Ryan was running for president, Luke. I mean, let's be clear. When Trump was faltering, when the Access Hollywood tape came out, Paul Ryan immediately stepped up a shadow presidential campaign with the expectation that Trump would be asked to stand down or he would stand down and they would insert him. He used to have these weekly or daily, almost daily or weekly YouTube videos from the Speaker of the House. No speaker had ever done that before. It was a de facto presidential campaign. And when Trump weathered the storm, Ryan was odd man out. Uh, regardless, he probably couldn't get reelected to his home district now. Anything surprising you in the Russia versus Ukraine war? Uh, yeah, it surprises me Putin took this long to turn Poland and Bulgaria's gas off. Now, if he really wants to make a splash, he'll turn Germany's gas off. 
uh, however, Austria, uh, there's Austria is now leading the way and in indicating they're going to pay. The whole issue is he's making the Western Europe pay for gas and rubles, which kind of uh, is a way of blowback on the sanctions, negating them. So, uh, uh, you know, Poland and Bulgaria said no, he cut their gas off. Poland is blustering as the Poles always do and say they have lots of reserves. Let's see how long those reserves uh, last. Uh, Bulgaria is probably going to have to bend the knee. And I'll say that Germany, uh, which gets about 80% of their natural gas supply from Russia, is going to have to make a hard choice. Uh, I suspect if Russia, Germany goes through on their recent statement that send heavy you know, offensive equipment, military equipment to Ukraine, they'll get their gas shut off too. Now, you must be surprised by the poor performance of the Russian armed forces. No one realized that they were this bad. Well, I wouldn't say it that way. Put it that way. We all expected a rock or a rock type of war situation or a Berlin 19, 1945 situation where the uh, Russians would uh, start off with heavy artillery barrage, the flying Katusha rockets, and would carpet bomb the hell out of Ukraine, Ukraine's infrastructure, command and control. The Russian, the initial Russian battle plan uh, was is what the problem was, is that they decided he decided to march in like he did in Crimea and take the country without any damage, i.e. and having to rebuild it. And uh, he had some bad intelligence, happened in the United States too. The United States got bad intelligence on Iraq and Afghanistan. I, as an American, am not going to sit there and go, ha, 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 the Russians are performing badly when in 20 years, uh, the modern United States military cannot pacify but the 60 IQ goat herders in Afghanistan, just not willing to do it. I think now Putin's got his generals, kind of like the Civil War, where Lincoln got his general, got a plan. He's pulled out of the, uh, the Kiev region, which you can say could have been a, a way in which to deplete uh, Ukrainian resources, wars about resources. He's now attacking uh, in the eastern part of the country where it's all flat, you know, relatively flat, and there's a lot more sympathy there, and he can actually roll his tanks through there, and he is making significant gains in the eastern part of the country. Remember, when this first started, Luke, I said that Putin probably did not have any designs on anything west of the Dnieper River. That appears to be the case. Um, I, I think the attempt at capturing Kiev was attempt to knock Zelensky off, but I think the Russian troops go to the Dnieper River, stop, annex it, or set up another, you know, uh, satellite country. Then Russia has its buffer zone that it's been worried about, you know, from the very beginning. Uh, it's not like we didn't know about this position of Russia. They, they talked about it back in the 1990s. The former, the last U.S. ambassador, he also carried over, was the first ambassador of Russia indicated this was a bad mistake that the Russians had been talking about. If you put literally a NATO saber at the gut of the Russian Federation, that was going to cause problems. Well, you know, uh, all I could say is Ukraine doesn't have a Navy anymore. Uh, they don't have an Air Force anymore. They don't have tanks. And I'm judging that based on what Zelensky is, is just screaming the loudest for. Uh, and the Russians can hit them at will, either from the air or the cruise missiles. Yes, they, uh, the, the Ukrainians used a, a U.S.-supplied uh, rocket to knock out a near 40-year-old Soviet-era ship. Uh, 
good on them. That was silly that Captain got too close. But uh, beyond that, uh, there's just Ukraine doesn't win this. Uh, a war of attrition, the Russians love that. And I'm going to go a step further. Come the May Day celebrations, the, you know, the patriotic war celebrations uh, in Moscow that's going to happen here in a couple of weeks, first week of May, Luke. Putin is probably going to give one of those Stalinist type great patriotic war. We're going to denazify Ukraine and drive out the, and that'll probably galvanize, uh, you know, Russian support higher than it already is. What the Americans aren't understanding is this war is not unpopular in, in Russia proper. And it's not because they're getting fed a bunch of, a bunch of, of propaganda uh, by any means. Uh, there's been this issue up until a month before the uh, Russian invasion, the Western media was talking about, you know, neo-Nazis in high positions in Ukraine, the Azov Brigade and, and such. And then Fox News is now running clips provided by the Azov Brigade. There was a rally for the Azov Battalion, I'm sorry, uh, in New York. And that only helps Putin's case to his own populace. So, uh, you know, long term, uh, you know, I think the wrong battle plan was uh, was deployed. Uh, there was an assumption that he could take all of Ukraine or at least the eastern part of Ukraine the way he took Crimea. And uh, when that didn't work, you know, he, he's got the general that literally laid ISIS low in Syria, as well as most of the townships in, in eastern Syria uh, to take over. And if I was Zelensky, I would I would seriously negotiate because what's happening is he's losing his country. His country's getting laid low. And, uh, you know, I don't think that uh, foregoing NATO membership and being a neutral state is such a bad, uh, uh, a bad deal. And I'm not the only one that's of that opinion. Israeli Prime Minister Bennett is of that position as well. And and how does this end? For me to be in a far be it for me to be in a hundred percent agreement with Israel. How do you think this uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict ends? It ends with uh, I think Putin has I think he ends at the Dnieper River when the Russians control the eastern part of the country, somewhere somewhere east or on the Dnieper River, and they have pacified that part of the country and they've established a complete land bridge from Russia proper to uh, Crimea and maybe even over to Transnistria, which is a, a breakaway province of Moldova, who has long wanted to be part of Russia and they annex them, I think that it's over. But there's no way that Ukraine gets back anything east of the Dnieper River, whether it's what the Russians are holding now or what they will hold uh, in the future. Uh, it's just not going to happen. Unlike, you know, the, this, you know, you can, you can compare this to Afghanistan. Keep in mind, it took 10 years for the Soviets to leave Afghanistan. And even then, it was only because the type of leader Mikhail Gorbachev was, the Russians were still standing and, and fighting in Afghanistan uh, for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, for the, a lot of this, you talk to a lot of the Russian veterans who didn't like the way they left. You hear from American veterans who don't like how we left in Afghanistan uh, our, during our tenure. So it ends at the Dnieper River. It ends with uh, uh, one, uh, it, it could even end in a North Korea type situation where there's a, a, a perpetual ceasefire, but never a formal end to hostilities. Actually, that's where I think it's gonna end up is they'll just agree to stop fighting at the Dnieper River and 
uh, Ukraine will complain that they want Crimea and their eastern uh, part of the country back. Russia will have it and they won't have any sort of formal uh, uh, end of hostilities. What are the implications for the U.S. versus China competition? Well, China's not spending billions and printing billions and billions to send to a foreign country at the expense of its citizens. Um, they're too busy locking people up and boarding up windows in Shanghai. Uh, but, uh, you know, China is actually the ultimate winner because what's happening is China is seeing two of its major foes literally, you know, be eroded economically and militarily, Russia militarily, the United States economically. How much longer can we send, you know, 33 billion here, 18 billion there, uh, wipe out student loan debt? How much longer can we just keep doing this? I used to say about 60% of the U.S. economy is artificial. I think it's probably up to 80 now. Mm. Mm -hmm, mm. But China's the ultimate winner in all this because they're watching two of their main foes literally get drained militarily and economically. Well, I mean, if the, if the price of oil keeps going up, uh, China's going to be in great trouble because China has to import almost all of its energy while the U.S. is almost self-sufficient. Well, is the U.S. self-sufficient? Almost. Why, 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 was, why was Biden begging, uh, trying to cut a deal with Iran to buy oil from them, went down with his tail between his legs to Venezuela, who we've crapped on, you know, since literally the George Bush administration, the first George Bush administration. I'm just curious if we were energy independent, uh, why, uh, you know, why is he begging, going around crying poor mouth to all these countries that literally don't like us? China, they got oil. They're going to buy Russian oil. And uh, uh, so they'll, they'll they're going to be fine. Um, I don't think they're going to go and gobble up Taiwan like everybody else thought they would do. Uh, they're not that brazen. China, they'll wait. They'll wait for the United States to be fully degraded before they go uh, and, and do that. Uh, I, I, however, if they went and did it tomorrow, Biden wouldn't do anything. And uh, what's going on with Iran these days? Is there going to be a rapprochement between Iran and the United States? Probably not. Um, that Biden tried, uh, and it's funny. Uh, <laughs> as close as Iran has gotten with uh, India uh, and China and Russia, if Biden would have said, hey, if you sell us oil, I'll take all U.S. sanctions off, he would have gotten that deal. And he would have gotten the oil that he wanted. We probably, you know, we wouldn't have $6 a gallon gas in L.A. We'd probably only have four fifty a gallon gas in L.A. Uh, because the, the Iranian infrastructure, oil infrastructure, is just not that good uh, due to just years. It's, 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 it's still 1979, 1980 infrastructure. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think so. Uh, Iran is much like uh, uh, China. And that, uh, you know, they're seeing, uh, they're seeing uh, their major foe, the great Satan, as they like to call it, uh, literally drowned itself uh, uh, in debt and inflation and high energy costs. And sooner or later, you know, Iran figures they're going to want that Iranian oil on the global uh, open market. So, you know, they, they've waited this long. They're kind of like the Cubans, Luke. Uh, they've waited this long and, you know, toiled through it for this long. A few more years isn't going to hurt anything.
And how, how do you account for the seeming strength of, of NATO and the seeming unity of the West vis-a-vis Russia? Well, what strength? Um, do you think that, uh, uh, you mean you mean that they're starting to, Germany is finally, has found um, part of a spine and it's going to arm itself? Uh, that's interesting. Uh, wait and see after Poland and Bulgaria, who else gets their gas shut off? Wait and see if Putin starts fueling, just for, just for bluster, starts fueling ballistic missiles in Kaliningrad, which is sitting right there, you know, where East Prussia used to be. I, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, NATO hasn't done anything, you know, that... Uh, uh, overly remarkable. They're they're still buying Russian oil. They're still buying Russian energy while condemning them as and I can tell you, Putin is only going to put up with this uh, running arms into Ukraine uh, for so long. He long remembers how the U.S. supplied the Mujahideen uh, in Afghanistan against the against the Soviets, and I, you know, we're gonna we're gonna find out. Uh, you know, the economies of Europe has taken a hit uh, as well. Uh, you know, the French election was all about the economy and inflation and standard of living and things of that nature. They're, they're not in the best shape. Of all the European countries, Germany has the deepest pockets. It's just, you know, how much are they going to spend, you know, to keep things normal? And uh, would you describe yourself as a populist? Mm. I would describe myself more as a nationalist before I describe myself as a populist, but there are some populist things that I uh, uh, agree with. I, I don't agree with, you know, I, I agree with uh, unilateral trade. That's probably a populist position. Um, so I, it just depends. What does populism mean? Keep in mind, populism back at the, you know, last century, that was pretty liberal, actually. <laughs> that was a liberal tendency. It's kind of morphed. Uh, I'm probably more of a nationalist. I really, you know, I, I detest foreign entanglements. Uh, I think probably the greatest, uh, one of the greatest statements that we have left from our founding fathers is Washington saying, don't engage in foreign entanglements. Why are we, first of all, why are we spending billions and billions of dollars that we do not have, that we're borrowing from China, by the way, which is interesting, to send to Ukraine, they're not a NATO member, uh, there, you know, what is the, the strategic interest in uh, antagonizing a, a nuclear power that actually has more nuclear warheads than the United States? Uh, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get NATO. NATO was designed to uh, oppose the Soviet Union. Uh, this uh, attack on one is attack on all. Well, Turkey is a member of NATO, and they've been pretty crappy to other NATO nations. So. I don't even support NATO. I don't believe in getting into a treaty that says if, you know, the other guy across the street gets into a fight with his neighbor, I have to come and, you know, him to his side, even if he started it. You know, I, I just don't like that. To me, that's just, pardon my language, batshit crazy uh, to be in those types of alliances, especially when the United States is broke and war weary. I don't see the population is supporting any other, you know, military engagements, which is why both Republicans and Democrats, while they're doing their neocon crap over UK, Ukraine, always issue that disclaimer. We're not going to send U.S. troops there. Okay. And why do you think there's so little, little opposition then to Biden's plan to send, what, $38 more billion to Ukraine? Uh, 
Well, it's common interest. Uh, neocons in the United States are beholden uh, to military. Just think about how much money Raytheon alone lines the pockets of all those political prostitutes in the House and Senate. They don't care if they have a D or an R behind their name. They just go in there and, you know, those congressmen put on their skirts and fishnet uh, tops and put on the lipstick and they whore themselves out politically to uh, the defense uh, uh, industry. So, you know, when we're sending weapons, who's paying? First of all, the United States is going to send weapons. Okay, we're going to pay for those weapons from Raytheon and other other defense contractors to send them over there. So there's a there's big money in this. Not to mention, you know, Joe Biden's family, they don't want to lose their cash cow. Remember, the big guy got 10% of the take of anything that was done over in Ukraine. So I wonder if he's getting 10% of this, you know, $33 billion. Okay, Elliot Blatt, what's, what's going on, man? Oh, bro, you'll never guess what I just did, bro. What? I'm just coming out of a flotation sensory depression, sensory deprivation tank. You ever done that? Uh, no. H how do you feel, man? Oh, a million bucks, bro. A million bucks. Oh, oh here we go. I'm about to hit by a car. Yeah, I don't know. I've been in hell this last couple of weeks, you know, with all this. My eyes have been burning and it's been a bad spell. Uh, so I decided to treat myself, you know, treated okay. myself. So now I'm, uh, Cool as a cucumber, my dude. So, Rod Rodney Martin, how are you feeling these days? Have you been in any sensory deprivation tanks? No, but speaking of healing, I'm assuming that's a part of, of healing. Yeah. I've been doing a couple. I got one next week. I'm going to be there back in LA. I was there last week. Be back again. But, uh, you know, I was given a book. Maybe you have it. Maybe you know of it. It's called... Uh, Jewish Healing Wisdom by uh, Stephen Roseman. Are you f familiar with it? Uh, no. Is it any good? Well, let me tell you, uh, it is uh, very, very informative. It's just all about, you know, making yourself healthy and, and healing. And it talks about, you know, both physical and, and your emotional health and being a part of community. Talks about good, you know, you know, you know the right perspective on, on eating and all of that. And, uh, you know, I kind of got into this last spell I've had at uh, going to the hospital that, uh, you know, I decided I was going to just go back to my uh, roots, my younger years, and go back to eating one meal a day and, and fasting and doing all that stuff. And I actually, I've dropped 30 pounds and I feel the best that I have in years. And I'll tell you, it was after, you know, the, uh, I got this book at Cedars and uh, I'll send you the information. I'll look, it's, it's an excellent read. It's worth reading. Okay, great. Uh, Elliot, so how are you taking care of yourself, Elliot? Oh, well, it's been hard, you know. Um, you know, I, uh, these allergies have kicked in. I haven't felt like exercising. Uh, I've been eating, like, poorly, not sleeping well. So, uh, you know, I was on a good roll there for a while, but uh, I've kind of fallen off the horse. So I'm trying to get back on. So I'm throwing all these kinds of desperate measures at it. So, Rodney, I, I think that the, the main source of energy is from connections with, with other people. So, Well, funny, funny you should say that, Luke, because there's a section in this book. It's chapter two. It's called self-examination. And I'm a believer. Uh, I think I've expressed that on your show. We should all, I used to say self-reflection, self-examination. 
and there's a checklist here. Let me, can I share a couple yes, of them with you? Yes. It says, uh, I spend time regularly, it's a checkbox. It's like a little workbook. Now, no one's written in this book. It was given to me. It, it's used, but it's, it's like new. I spend time, uh, I spend time with friends regularly. And you check that. I call friends and get calls from friends. I correspond with friends and get correspondence from friends. I do thoughtful things for friends. Now, I can honestly say, no bloviating, I, all, I could check all of those boxes. And it says, I spend time regularly with a mentor, teacher, study partner, or activity companion. I seek out support groups. There you are, Luke. Even your support groups are a healthy thing. Right. And it goes on. I spend time regularly with family. Well, it's hard for me not to, given the number of kids and grandkids that I have. That's always been a real uh, uh, sense of strength for me. I'm in touch regularly with family who live far away. Yeah, I agree with that. I enjoy holidays with family. I'm blessed with supportive family, yes. Uh, when I'm confronted with challenges, absolutely. I'm supportive of family members who need me, yes. And then it goes on. It, it goes into great detail. Uh, and I think, you know, you've talked about this on your show, but the way this is written, you know, it, uh, it's, it's very well done. And uh, it gets even into and part of the self-examination. It talks about exercise. You don't have to go to a gym and pump iron. You can just go walking and or do some stuff in your home. Go up, you know. I like stair steps, by the way. I like going and, and uh, going upstairs like I used to when I was younger at the local football field. Uh, and uh, anyway, I'll send you. Uh, matter yeah. of fact, Luke, when I'm done with this book, I'm going to give it to you. Oh, yeah. Well, at least send, send me a link, send me the title. Uh, Elliot, how are you doing with the whole human connection thing? You'll have to unmute if you're there. Oh, but Luke, I'm a total gutter ball. Total gutter ball. Couldn't be worse. Well, this is your bowling group, bro. You're not bowling a line. You're not bowling a line, bro. I was listening to that checklist, and I'm like, oh, God, no. No, Jesus, no. <laughs> it, was, it was murder, bro. I got work to do, my dude. Uh, Rodney, it's kind of funny because you're such a pugnacious, you know, confrontational uh, guy, yet you've maintained a lot of human relationships. So how do you square those two things? Well, it depends on who I'm, you know, being pugnacious to. I mean, obviously, I, I would not debate my adult children the way I would debate the people on your, your stream. And of course, you know, maybe your stream is a is a is a, a way of blowing off steam. So, you know, in a healthy way where I don't blow off steam at home, you know, there you have to think about I don't I'm not saying that's the case, uh, but I think we're all we're all different. Uh, uh, you know, obviously, I would not talk to uh, uh, my employees the way that I probably have addressed and debated people on your stream and others. but. Um, all things uh, given, uh, given the right outlet, I think you can channel, you know, whatever and whatever you're feeling at any given time. But keep in mind, I told you this, I think when we had coffee once, Luke, that I'm a reaction person. I, I react to what's in front of me. And so if it's a subtle, you know, very gentlemanly like uh, discussion, I, I'm game for that. If someone comes up and tries to punch me in the face, well, I'm going to be like Mike Tyson to that guy on that airplane. And, uh, you know, it's just the way it is. It's just my personality. And, uh, but I, I'm not natural. I'm not naturally the way, the way you describe me, and I, I think you kind of know that from the times we've kind of spent met in person. Yeah, 
And uh, Elliot, you'll have to unmute, but do you want to blow off steam about anything, Mr. Blatt? Well, at the very moment, I don't have much steam to blow off, but uh, it's just uh, it's just a matter of time, my dude. But I'm here in the I'm here in like the, the Marina District, which is kind of like a it's like one of the most posh neighborhoods in the city, and like just the the women here, unbelievable, like yoga pants all over town cycling you know spa treatments it's really it's really a different world bro are you thinking of joining a gym elliot no i think those days are over my dude i think oh. it's uh i think it's just water sports wow <laughs> disavow <laughs> disavow <laughs> Uh, Rodney, what what sort of exercise routine have you been able to maintain? Do you belong to a gym? I have a gym on my property. It still is fully. It's a, it's a boxing gym, and I had I had not been in it, and my kids had been in it, but not me. But uh, probably the last couple of months, I've gone back in there and uh, uh, thrown a few limp wrists at the uh, at the heavy bag. Nowhere near what I did when I was twenty. And then I am walking uh, far more. I walk about five o'clock in the morning, and then again about oh eight at night. And then I've cut, you know, I've radically changed, you know, in terms of because I I ended up having a diabetic problem. Luke, to be honest, I got hauled into the hospital with a seven hundred blood sugar level, wow. and I don't know what caused it. Because I, yeah, they didn't know how I walked in there. They were surprised. My son took me, and uh, anyway, they uh, I was in for. So I've been taking care of that, but I've radically changed. I eat basically a meal and a half a day. I have eliminated all sugars. Uh, I actually, Luke, I've actually nearly 99% eliminated all booze uh, as well. Wow. Wow. And, uh, and I feel better. I, I feel better. I feel stronger. You know, I'm actually able to go and uh, uh, do things with my grandkids that I kind of was blowing off because I just, you feel like crap when your health's screwy. And uh, Elliot, what are you, what are you going to do to turn things around, bro? Aside from sensory deprivation tanks, you'll have to. You'll have what to is that? Up. What exactly? How does that work? Oh, you want you want the blow by blow? Yes. Give you the whole blow by blow. All right. Well, well how, how about a description? I really don't want a blow by blow, but uh, a description <laughs> just, would be great. I'm just trying to honor your boxing <laughs> tradition, Rodney. <laughs> So anyway, you get in there. So it's like, a, it's always, a, I rarely do this type of thing, but you go in there and it's all sort of foofied out. You know, it's got like soothing music and incense and plants and bookshelves about positive stuff. And, you know, you go in there and then you, you go into the, they call it a pod. And a pod, it's like a big tub with a cover on it. You know, and then in the in the tub is is Epsom salt and water, so you're completely buoyant, right? You can stay completely floating without any effort. You're just, uh, and the water is like exactly your body temperature, so you just sort of relax into this state. You can hear your heartbeat, like you know, like it's a marching band, you know, and then you just the salt kind of relaxes you and. Uh, you know, you you just kind of let go of your cares and woes for a while there, Luke. 
And are there other dudes in the tank with you? No, bro. It's solo. It's okay. totally solo. <laughs> and that, that, can uh, solo. are there? Can you? Uh, are there? Are there women in there that make sure that the ending is happy in those tanks? <laughs> well, they are at the desk. I, I'm I'm totally down for that. Sign me up, and you know, I'm I'm, I'm there. I don't. You know, at the end of the thing, like, I got roped into this thing, right? Like. You sign up and they say special and it's 65 bucks. And I'm thinking, ah, whatever, 65 bucks. But then you sign up, you give them the card and there's, there's tax and then you forget to put in the code and then it's not 65 bucks. At the end, it's a hundred bucks. And then like you check out, then there's that little opportunity, that little screen thing. Would you like to tip? Oh yeah. So like, oh my God. So I click the $10 tip thing. And so it's 110 bucks. Well, actually, 112 bucks, soup to nuts, with all the tax and stuff. And like, now, see, my mind immediately just leaps on this sort of little negative twist. I'm not, I'm not going to make a scene in this spa about 35 bucks and the special and the coupon. I just can't do that. So, but, but. it's just one of those things where it's just like they always get you, Luke. They always get you. So what happened to putting the code in so you get the special discount, mate? Well, I did that, but the discount didn't appear on my bill. And, like, I didn't want to be a Karen and say, well, I put in the discount code, you know? I, I, I just well, let these things I – just, I just take it on the chin, Luke. I, I, it's like Christ-like. I just take it like it's, you know, my cross to bear, bro. I'm stoic that way. Yeah, I know what you're talking you didn't, about. You didn't want to draw attention to yourself, huh? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right, bro. I didn't want to look, yeah. So how do you see the world differently after being in the deprivation tank? I mean, it sounds like you've really gotten spiritually centered. Well, this, I mean, I... Not three minutes after I got out of the tank, I'm on the phone with you. Beautiful. Like, I haven't Beautiful. really, I haven't even, like, processed it but i looked down and i saw the invite and it said well maybe maybe i must it's time for me to call in well the timing couldn't have been more perfect and is this something <laughs> you plan to do regularly um well probably not but i wouldn't i'll definitely do it again but i don't think i would do it regularly i would do it in sort of like an emergency situation where you know like these past few weeks have been difficult so i've been you know i'm feeling stress more than i usually feel it and so i decided you know rather than take a big bong hit or a bunch of cbd i decided to go the natural route my dude i think you need some jewish healing wisdom bro <laughs> that could be in the cards my dude this could yeah, be you share the book be. with him yeah stephen m rossman bro I, I read all, I read all the time. I know I'm on a good course, bro. I, I'm I'm not complaining. I just took a little. Sometimes you need a little remedial attention, you know. You got to put it on eleven. You got to take your relaxation off to ten and go go one louder, or one quieter, and make it eleven. <sighs> no, my phone. There's a very, out. you know, Luke. There's a very prophetic statement in this book. Do not live to eat to live makes a lot of sense doesn't it yeah elliot you, you were saying something well my phone may cut out 
spontaneously. It's because my battery went out. But I should be in the car within four minutes, and it could recharge. So okay, just I think. Do you and, need Do you need the latest iPhone, bro? It sounds like it. God, I just I got a twelve. I got a twelve. Plus, I just got bro. the thirteen, bro. Oh, you're so much better than me, Luke. You're so much better than me. You just have apple, to rub it in. Apple bro. heads. You just apple have to heads. rub it in, bro. Couldn't Run. hold it in, bro. Couldn't hold it in, could you, Luke? No, no, no. Uh, Rodney, what type of of uh, phone do you use? A uh, Samsung. And how old is it? Uh, just got it. Uh, it's oh, okay. just in fact, it's not even done being programmed yet, and I still have. Uh, I got the new LG last year, right when they decided to get out of the cell phone business, and I actually love that phone. And uh, Elliot, have you been reading any good books lately? Of course not, Luke. I'm functionally, <laughs> I'm functionally illiterate, Luke. I'm, I'm, I'm intentionally illiterate. <laughs> a mind's a terrible thing to waste, Elliot. Luke, there's nothing, there's nothing intrinsically better than reading for, off a page than it is to be listening to somebody speak. In fact, it's more, you get more nuance if you listen to people talk because there's things that are said by the silence and the pauses, Luke. And so I'm able to get more done and learn more just by not wasting my time and exerting my eyes unnecessarily on these, the printed word, Luke. The printed word is, is fetishized in this culture, Luke. Yeah, yeah, we, we definitely read too many books in this culture, that, that's the problem. Uh, Rodney, have you been reading any good books aside from this one on Jewish healing wisdom? That one, that one is my, uh, I just finished uh, uh, Eugene Weber's big book on Western civilization, the one that's like 1,300 pages. That was an incredible read. Uh, and, but then I picked the, this one, this book was given to me, the one on healing wisdom. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'm, I'm game. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just enjoying the hell out of it. Okay, The Western Tradition by Eugene Weber. Um, yeah, he also did. Yeah, he did a series uh, through UCLA. Uh, in fact, I had a couple classes with him, and then uh, two. Uh, he wrote a book on on basically Western civilization, and it's a monster. It's just a monster. Elliot, you're about to say something about Western civilization. Uh, oh no, I'm having a panic attack because my car is not where I thought it was. Oh, man. You'll never walk alone, bro. Oh, this could be a long night, Luke. Walk on, bro. <laughs> oh, God. That happens oh, That happens racing. to me in parking garages. My heart's racing, Luke. When you walk oh. through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. Oh, God, Luke. I'm sweating. At the end of a storm, there's a golden sky and the sweet silver song <laughs> of a lark. Oh, how could I be so stupid? Walk on through the wind. Walk on through the rain, though your dreams be tossed and blown. Uh, hold on. You'll never walk I alone. I go through this. I go through this drama quite often. So, uh, oh god, yeah, that happened to me in parking garages. Uh, it's the worst feeling. Now uh, I just go around clicking the clicker till I get in range, and then I know where I parked. Oh, did I really fuck this up? I remember looking and scrutinizing it, making sure it was a safe space. Uh. Oh, this would be ironic. There are no safe spaces in L.A. Uh, He's uh, in San Francisco. Uh, no, yeah, that's worse. So what's uh, it like coming back into L.A., Rodney? 
What's that? I'm sorry. What's it like coming back into LA? So you live outside of LA now, but well, you're coming actually, back in. Well, I, you know, I've been coming back now, you know, for the last, probably the last month for his medical stuff. And I come back next week for a surgery, but you know, I have to, you have to give credit where credit's due. You can't be grossly unfair. They are making an effort to clean the mess up. Yeah. Uh, my understanding is Echo Park was cleaned up and then the sheriff went down and started cleaning up Venice. But I've noticed even around Beverly Hills, uh, for instance, uh, uh, on the uh, uh, just west of Third Street, uh, that has all been cleaned up. Uh, homeless tents are off. They are making an effort uh, to clean it up. Uh, so, you know, and uh, I noticed also, you know, I stay right across at the hotel, right across the street from Cedars. And I noticed that there's just none of the savory characters after 10 o'clock at night there in, anymore. So there seems to be an effort. I don't know how they're doing it when they have a district attorney that won't prosecute crime, but whatever they're doing, they're making an effort. And uh, Elliot, you'll have to unmute. Is San Francisco cleaning up its homeless and dysfunction problems, its astronomical crime and feces on the street and all that? No, not in the slightest. Uh, it's, it's, I'm actually in the marina, which is usually pretty aseptic, and I actually just passed a tent, uh, which you, you normally never see. You, know, you don't normally don't see that in this neighborhood. And that means that, you know, they've broken through. They've broken through the, into the Swipple neighborhoods. It's terrible. And what about human defecation on the streets? Uh, not today, but uh, I, I'm sure it's as bad as it's ever been. Uh, well, I was Luke, I, uh, just go ahead, Rodney. You talk about bad, um, Seattle and Olympia, Washington. I started a project up there. And of course I don't stay anywhere near the downtown areas, but the, uh, hospital that I had to go to, I was up there and started all this medical stuff, The it's adjacent to a park. The Catholics own this whole mountaintop, uh, in Olympia and, uh, going up the road adjacent to this park is just lined with tents uh and uh, uh you know dilapidated rvs and such and there's areas that are landscaped areas that are pub you know uh, literally landscape medians that are fairly large like they, they call them in transportation charter the gore zone uh between where the uh, uh highway will uh, interchange will link up with the you know into the municipality and i can tell you luke driving around up there uh, Olympia and Seattle is worse than LA was at its worst. Wow. And they're not doing anything. It used to be isolated to Seattle. And then some friends of mine, I know up there that live, you know, in Olympia and such, they've actually moved from Olympia, uh, down, you know, to some of the outlying areas and they've not done anything yet. Uh, and it is just bad. I mean, it is horrible, bad. And uh, my daughter was driving with me up there, uh, and uh, she said, this is worse than L.A. was, and I have to agree with her. Hmm. And uh, L.A. Do you remember, uh, do you remember, do you remember the former, uh, he passed away, the ceramic artist, Charles Kraft, Luke? Not sure. He's the one that got canceled because uh, he had uh, gone to one of Greg Johnson's conferences, and the conference list got leaked. And he had his exhibits in Paris and New York. I mean, he was big time. He was a ceramic craftsman. Oh, and he yes. Actually, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, he passed away. 
a brain cancer, but he once told me, we were hanging out in Seattle one time, that he did his best work when his studio and he would have podcasts on like yours or, or you know, the, 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 some of the other, you know, shall we say, uh, uh, controversial podcasts. Yeah. And he got a kick out of it. You know, they were calling that guy a Nazi and he was the farthest thing from a Nazi. He was a, a Buddhist. He would, he would go to the, you know, the Ganshi River in India to do the, whatever they do. He was, you know, he just wasn't, he just was, was an absolutist in terms of free speech and such, but he sure, they sure destroyed his life and uh, made it hard for him to, you know, live his remaining years, you know, in any sort of peace and stability. And uh, what about you, Rodney, of, of, uh, of people trying to cancel you? All the time. It's not my kids. It's my, I'm joking. Uh, yeah. Uh, there was a period of time, probably, Oh, I'd say 2008, 2009, 2010, where people showed up at my house. The difference is, as you say, I, like I told you, I'm a, I react to what's presented me, and it didn't work out well uh, for those folks. And uh, so uh, uh, they gave up. And, of course, most people know that 99% of the time I'm armed, so they're not going to try to hit me with a bike lock. I know, unlike a lot of people, I know how to use a, a weapon. And uh, I don't believe in going out and brandishing it. I don't believe in going out and wearing it on the hip. But people knew that I'm not the one that you want to go and hit with a bike lock or, or do anything like do anything and such. But it, it was about four months back at the end of 2008 to 2010 that it was it was interesting. And I mean, they even what's even funnier is they tried to bully my wife at a grocery store, and that worked out even worse for them than had they confronted me. Because she's a real zealot. And uh, Elliot Blatt, back to you, bro. All right. Well, I figured out the car situation. I was on the wrong street. So the palpitations have subsided. <laughs> uh, so, but my sort of ambient stress level is back to the pre, pre-immersion time. So basically, my, my immersion has been canceled. Is this when you, you pick up a transvestite being a good Samaritan and to give him a ride? No, but I did that. I picked up a veteran like a couple of years ago, like, um, and he needed a ride. So I said, uh, all right, I'll give you a ride. Uh, big mistake, Luke. Big mistake. <laughs> like, did he give you a happy ending? No, no, no. But he, he starts telling ending. me, bye. So he was in my car for a total of two minutes, right? And the, <laughs> in, in the total uh, span of that two minutes, uh, you know, I got this tale of woe and he had like hepatitis C and HIV. And I'm like, wow. why do I do this shit, bro? <laughs> why do I do this? Shit? I fall for these fucking stories all the time, bro. But luckily it was only a two minute ride. And I uh, sent him on his way. How much uh, How much Lysol did you use in your car after he got out? Well, I, I took it to one of those. Um, <laughs> I took it to one of those uh, car, car washing places where they have like 20 illegal aliens. You could just kind of yeah. descend on it. And then they just sanitize every. You could brew beer in your car afterwards. I mean, they sanitize yeah. every molecule out of the car. So, you know, Luke, go ahead, Rodney. 
Well, that is something I have never done. I have never picked up a hitchhiker, ever. You should try it, bro. Well, no, thank you. Have you ever picked up a hitchhiker? Uh, yeah, I, I picked up women hitchhiking. Okay, was it a rewarding experience? Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't negative. I, I can I can only think of one occasion in my whole life. It was in Oregon, and Oregon seems you know pretty safe. So I gave a young woman a ride in Oregon. Yeah, Oregon's safe as long as you're not in Portland. Yeah, yeah. On uh, Easter, or you know, Eastern Passover, I went on a road trip with uh, two of my daughters. We started uh, in uh, Seattle, well, not in Seattle proper. I don't go into Seattle proper, but we drove down the coast route all the way down to LA in time for my uh, appointment at Cedars. And it was, it was just a wonderful drive, beautiful scenery. Uh, and what's funny is we only saw, now you can calculate the miles, it's about 900 miles. Uh, of course we stopped along the way, but uh, I only saw two cops and two hitchhikers along that entire drive on Interstate 5 from Washington down through Oregon, down to California, down to LA. Yeah, I think you have a lot more in, in Australia. My, my brother was hitchhiking from a fairly early age, so. Australia doesn't have. And that's a different culture. Crime. Yeah, very different culture. Yeah, I mean, you can literally. I mean, does your uh, does your family over there still lock their? Do they lock their doors at night? Uh, maybe some of them do, but uh, it's it's not really necessary. Yeah, it used to be that way in the states. Yeah, until the 1960s, really. In the San Fernando Valley, yeah. Steve Saylor says you didn't have to lock your car door or your home. Till the 1960s. Yeah, my uh, my uh, grandmother lived uh, in Westwood in the 1950s, where they moved to San Diego, and said that they never locked their doors. But things happened starting about 1962, and that's when they moved to San Diego. Wow. And uh, Elliot, did you pay any attention to Mr. Medica versus Nick Fuentes? Uh, I did. I listened very passively. I think I'm kind of done with that whole story arc. It was a little, uh, uh, you know, I just got an icky feeling after a while. I mean, Nick didn't really come off too well. But, uh, you know, neither did Medicare. I, it is a, I don't know, bro. It, it, it's like the whole thing seems pretty negative, so I'm just trying to back away from it. Very high schoolish. I I listened to it, Luke, because you mentioned it on your show. I caught your show uh, the other day. So I, I tuned in to see if it was going to be bad. And boy, it was worse. You know, first of all, it was more like uh, junior high to freshman year high school type of banter. And uh, uh, Nick, I've, I've said this before on your show, he doesn't debate and he lies. You know, Medicare called him on the carpet several times for statements that he had clearly had made people know. And he just denies them and tries to laugh it off. And, you know, the most, I think the most interesting thing that came out of that is, you know, Nick admitted again that uh, he's a Mexican where a lot of his fanboys always say, oh, no, he's Spanish. And yet it's been, you know, known for quite some time. And he acts like one in his uh, debate. He's, I would say that he's not, uh, does not have excessively high uh, IQ at, at all. And the fact that he can take it. I mean, he can dish it out, but then he goes around and tries to get people censored and their uh, stuff removed because he's kind of butthurt 
Well, at the same time, you know, he talks and complains about people coming in and sabotaging or confronting him in his events, but it was okay for him to do that. Charlie Kirk, which Medicore had brought up uh, as well. I've always considered uh, Nick just to be the uh, a, a very, uh, two things. One, uh, a very self-loathing closeted homosexual. And two, uh, very juvenile. And all he does is gin up the, uh, you know, fellow juvenile, you know, socially retarded uh, and sexually stunted uh, followers that he has, what's few there's left. Yeah, it's kind of depressing, the, the low quality of, of the, these right-wing live streamers. I, I mean, I, how much has devolved and, and just the petty juvenile nature of their discussion that, that somehow it's some kind of moral failing or personal failing if you get seriously ill and the mocking of Medica for having cancer, and, and the, Nick Fuentes stands behind Christ is King. Well, most, most Satanists wouldn't, wouldn't speak the way that Nick Fuentes is speaking. I, I, I don't know. How do, you, how do you use the platform Christ is King and then speak the way that Nick was doing? Uh, by the way, there's a, a comment in the chat. Nick is 87% European. That's false. Uh, even he's admitted that. But two, uh, the... Uh, uh, I have found, Luke, in both my professional career and personal life, you come across people, those that scream the loudest about being, you know, Christian or Jewish or even Islam, I, you know, I've, all walks of life I've encountered, they tend to be doing that to almost like using church to go to the Rotary Club uh, as, as opposed to actually having any sort of spirituality at all. Uh, I would venture to say that... Uh, uh, Nick uh, has no deep spiritual connection to Catholicism uh, at all. I, I doubt that he is, goes to Mass regularly. I even doubt that he went to Mass on Easter. Uh, but uh, with that said, you know, it's easy, uh, you know, to pick up the mantra. I mean, it's like, it's like the evangelicals that supported Trump when everybody knew Trump was not an evangelical. Uh, remember when Trump said two Corinthians? I mean, yes. to me, there's not much difference between that. It's exploiting religion for a political purposes or wrapping yourself in religion or the flag, you know, for political purposes to tickle the ear of a very limited number of donors because you've made yourself unemployable, which is something that I've always told these young people. For God's sakes, don't make yourself unemployable or otherwise unable to get an education. And yet Nick has washed out at university. He's unemployable. He talks about being a millionaire. He lives at home with mommy. Um, all of his moral uh, bloviating seems to just be superficial, you know, for him to rake in a few uh, live stream donations. And uh, Elliot Blatt, are you souring on internet drama? It sounds like, uh, sounds like you're getting a little tired of it. If you want to unmute Elliot, yeah, I am. I'm getting a bit tired of it. It's not to say I'm not going to indulge in it. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it, I gotta put limits on it. It is. It is. I, I do think this is all going to culminate with some sort of real world violence between these parties. Uh, it's going to be. The, these characters are spiraling out of control in a really dangerous way. And uh, I, I just don't see how it doesn't, add, it doesn't sort of end in 
you know, either prison or, or suicide or some sort of act of violence. It just seems like it's on a very bad tra tra trajectory. Yeah, Rodney. Go ahead, Elliot. No, no, I had nothing else. Go. Uh, Rodney, there, there seems to be a lot of peril to becoming an, an Internet personality. It, it seems to have a deleterious effect on people's real lives. Well, I don't think, Luke, that uh, it's affected your life in a negative way no, because no, you're reasonable. Uh, uh, but when you have people that are trying to be Howard Stern shock, shock, drop, shock jocks, pardon, yeah. uh, hard time spitting that out. You know what I mean. Yeah. And But yet they are they are spewing some of the most vile and repulsive things, not to mention just absolute illiterate in terms of how, how the world works. And how you should, because they lock themselves into a very narrow echo chamber with a bunch of eunuchs. Uh, it's dangerous. Like I said, I go back to, you know, a young person should not be making themselves unemployable. They should not be making themselves unable to, uh, if, it's, if it's male, to uh, get a wife and, and have children and be able to provide for a family. For all of Nick's blow, I stay on him because he's the easiest, most hypocritical one. For all of his bloviating, um, you know, he he washed out of university. He blamed Antifa or whatever. There's lots of schools he could have gone and finished his degree. Uh, I don't know of any real job that he's had. So he's now he's kind of painted himself into a corner where he has to, you know, rattle the tin cup and say these stupid things. Because there is a, a, a market there, a very narrow market. But what's going to happen when that market dries up? What does he have left? Um, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, we've seen, has anybody heard from Andrew Anglin lately? He's a prime example. He rallied, you know, he just relished his role as the quote unquote shit poster and troll general of the troll army. He's more like General Custer. And now he's running from multiple judgments all around the globe. And, uh, you know, it, it, he was last reportedly to be in Russia. And I wonder if Russia is going to keep him since they have a predisposition of being pissed off against Americans right now. It's just it, it seems to me that this younger group of of uh, 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 of alt-right people, and that includes Richard Spencer, by the way, have a propensity at self-destruction. And upon upon destructing destroying themselves, they proclaim victory, which I, I find to be rather sordid and schizophrenic. And something that's going on here, I notice, is audience capture. People go online, they do a show, they get some applause, then they start growing towards the applause like a plant towards the sun. And that, mm -hmm. as they they chase the applause, it leads them down a dark path. Yeah, exactly. And sadly, the path they go down, sometimes a person can recover yeah. and come back, uh, you know, provided they weren't too stupid. But I don't see that, that you know, most of them don't, Luke. I mean, uh, Elliot talked about prison. Well, a lot of them are in prison. Most of Richard Spencer's shock troops that he took to Charlottesville have some sort of criminal conviction. Most of them felonies, which is going to preclude them from meaningful work, you know, for years to come. Uh, it, it's crazy. Look at the people. It does, it's not just limited to these, what I call the, you know, the socially retarded and the undersexed uh, alt-right. Look at some of the people that went to the January 6th rally, people that flew in on private jets. I don't see Nick Fuentes ever on a private jet, uh, if he's a millionaire. 
but that's another I issue. And yet they ruin their lives. Families destroyed. And of course, the most repulsive thing out of that whole event I saw was where family was informing on family as if we had morphed into the Soviet Union. Uh, that was simply incredible. The amount the, to, to me, uh, personally, I would rather serve time in jail, Luke, than to have my family destroyed uh, like that and be, be severed from my, you know, my kids and grandkids. And yet that happened. And these weren't just... These weren't, you know, people that worked in wrecking yards. These were uh, lawyers. Uh, they were uh, real estate agents. I mean, these were people that had successful, thriving careers that is now in the ash heap. And they'll probably never recover from it. They'll end up living at Starlight, Starbright Trailer Park. Yeah. Okay, Rodney. I'm as, gonna... long as, as long as Heinbach's not their neighbor. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Good to talk I'll, to uh, I'll bug off now. Okay, man. Take, Take care. care. Okay. Uh, Elliot Blatt, any any more thoughts? Any any wisdom to share with uh, us? Uh, wisdom. Uh, I'm driving with the sun in my eyes, Luke. It's tough to to, to produce wisdom in this, these conditions. Um, uh, not today, Luke. I'm sorry. I'm okay. I'm okay. Still floating, bro. Okay. You're welcome to come back in if you think of something you want to add. But, uh, oh, oh yeah, I did have I did have yes. something to talk about. Yeah. Uh, did you hear that uh, Menchus Molebug is they did a feature piece in him in Vanity Fair? Yes, I, I read it. Uh, it, was, it was quite a good did piece. You, did you Did you cover the story yet? I, I didn't cover it. I didn't have anything to add. But uh, I, I thought okay. it was a fairly, you know, fair piece. Jeff Bezos uh, praised the piece as well. Okay, interesting. I thought you might. Uh, all right, I'll have to read it myself before I say any more. Okay, bro. I just don't, heard about it. Don't hurt All your right. eyes. Maybe you can have someone read All it right. to you. Okay, good. <laughs> I'll find the audio version. Yeah. All right, later. Okay, bro. Take care. All right, All right uh, terrific uh, piece here by Stephen Turner, The Ideology of Anti-Populism and the Administrative State. It came out in 2021. So... What is the populist? Someone who believes in the virtue of the people. So this distinguishes the populist from the reformer. So the reformer is satisfied with his own virtue, but not with other people's virtue. So giving over government to the people is not the same as lecturing the people. So progressivism is the path of the reformer. So the progressives want the support and the enthusiasm of the people, and they envy the populace for this. But the progressives want to lead the people themselves. So populism progressivism, very different approaches. They're diametrically opposed. And so progressives assert themselves not in the name of the people's interests, not in the names of the people's wishes, but in the name of expertise. So progressivism, leftism, is the alliance of experts and an aroused people. So communism is ruled by experts. Socialism is really ruled by experts. The more left-wing you get, the more the ideology believes in rule by experts. So you have all these social movements based on expertise, notably the prohibition movement. So the prohibition movement used all the techniques presently associated with climate science under the heading alcohol science. And so this is how the experts became the third leg of the modern triad. So anti-populism takes the form of a whole series of assertions about expertise and governance that we need to turn over more and more of government to the experts. So the anti-populist 
is not satisfied with the people's virtue. The populist is satisfied with the people's virtue. So the anti-populist does not agree with the people's preferences. And so the anti-populist faces a fundamental problem. To deny populism is to deny democracy, to deny the idea that the people should govern themselves. So the anti-populists, the progressives, the left, pretend to be democratic, and they cannot overtly deny the myth of the people. But they believe in expertise and rulers, and so for the justification of their rule, they have to redefine the democratic idea to support for democratic institutions. They have to create an appropriate counter-myth that enables the people to have a place, but not to rule. So populism really comes from the pure democratic idea itself, rule by the people. But whenever we talk about democracy, we start adding all these disclaimers and qualifications and specifications. All right, the expressions of the will of the people must take the form of laws and procedures. We need election laws and laws governing representation. We need genuine democratic will formation that requires free individuals with freedom of speech and various individual rights. Or we need substantive equality between people rather than mere formal equality for meaningful democratic participation. All right, so these additions act as temporary stabilizers to the relations between the three elements, the people, the administrative state, and the experts, but they all have their own difficulties. So you can think of government as a way of reconciling relations between the wishes of the ruled and the superior power of the ruler. It's the the relationship between the person who makes shoes and the person who wears the shoes and complains that their feet hurt. So populism arises when you have a failure in the ruling of experts, right? The, the experts pretend to never exercise power, right? They, they pretend that they're just neutral and, and their expertise is above politics. So public health officials, right? Anthony Fauci says that Judges should not be making decisions. It's public health officials who should be making policy. So populism asserts the superior wisdom of the people. Progressivism, meaning leftism, socialism, communism, denies the superior wisdom of the people. So populism denies identification of power and expertise. So if governments are legitimated by experts, then what is the point of democratic accountability? What role do the people have other than to obey. So in much of our American democracy today, the, the only role for the people is to obey and occasionally ratify the whole system as a whole. Right? This no longer seems to be democracy. It is rather paternalism. But explicitly arguing for paternalism, explicitly arguing for rule by an elite or rule by experts cannot be squared with the rhetoric of democracy. So anti-populism is weird. Leftism is weird. So anti-populism comes from a particular ideological need. How do we reconcile practices derived from absolutism with the claim to be democratic? Right. How do we justify renewed extensions of government power and practice by experts that's rooted in the traditions of royal bureaucracies, how do we justify this and call this democratic? 
And so claims about expertise play a, play a large role in reconciling these two things. So populism is democratic. It's the assertion, the reassertion of popular control as a remedy for the perceived failures and the perceived injustices of normal political and administrative practice, particularly the failures of representation abuses by bureaucrats. So the rise of Donald Trump, the anti, uh, the, the Brexit, Brexit movement, uh, populism in Europe, in Italy, in, in Austria, this is a reaction to the failures of the governing elites. So in response to failures by the experts and the bureaucrats and the governing elites, populists endorse referenda, plebiscites, constitutional amendments, and direct elections over mediated elections, right? Depending on which corrupt system they're trying to circumvent. So populist movements happen when political parties, traditional leaders, elites, experts, and politics, as usual, fail to deliver the expected goods. They have failed to accord with the popular sense of reality, where our leaders are widely perceived to be untrustworthy and corrupt. So populism surges when you have elite failure when you have an increasingly widespread rejection of the workings of the political system itself. So, for example, in much of the Western world, in America, Australia, England, matters of immigration were simply taken off the table and the two, three main political parties in these countries essentially agreed to conduct themselves without debating high immigration, right? That was just not to become a political issue. So populism arises out of conflict, right? As an alternative to parties, populism relies on charismatic leaders like a Donald Trump. Populism usually is an attempt to take over an existing party like the Trumpites took over the Republican Party. Populist tendencies are prone to co-option. They typically do not outlast the situations that produce them, but they do represent a reserve of general sentiment against elites and particular ruling groups. So populism can be activated in new situations down the road. So populists differ from ideologies in that they are situational rather than analytic. Populism is not analytic, it's situational. So populists tend to have concrete targets and grievances. They don't tend to have developed analysis of political life that can be extended to new situations and can be refined and elaborated. So populism does not tend to be an intellectual movement, does not tend to be ideological. So populist movements have a preference for leaders who promise to act decisively in contrast to normal politicians. And so populism is usually hostile to politics as usual. So populism is situation-driven rather than analysis-driven. Populism is driven by specific crises and grievances. Doesn't tend to have a strong ideological viewpoint. So it may have an, an analytic component. So... Populism is essentially antinomian. It's kind of a rejection of law, of, of the way things are done. Now, how do elites rule as against the people? Elites rule through particular strategies, and they also fail through typical issues. So elite solidarity is essential to elite rule. So Donald Trump was able to pick off some elites, get them on his side. 
So division among the elites causes elite failure. Now, elites rule through alliances between the elite and a significant non-elite group. So the most stable of these alliances have been with the middle classes, normally under an ideology of meritocracy or property rights or support of the rights of business. And this alliance is played off against the demands of the excluded group, the poor. But then we get the modern Democratic Party in the United States, which is an upstairs-downstairs alliance between the elite and the underclass. Now, the upper hand that the elite has in dealing with the non-elite segments of society, right, the inner party versus the outer party, the inner party versus the country party, so the Democrats are the inner party, the Republicans are the country party. So the advantage that the elite have is that they can use these shifting alliances, right? They can choose alternate groups to ally with. So pluralism favors the elite. Pluralism is very different from populism. Pluralism means it's great to have different groups that uh, don't have very much in common. And so elites can shift their alliances to remain in power. So pluralism, the pluralistic society, that favors elite rule because it provides more opportunities to change alliances. Populism must produce enough unity in the population to effectively counter the elite and can therefore transcend differences between segments of the society in the name of the people. So left and right populisms tend to be anti-pluralist, right? Because that's just a consequence of the dynamics of elite alliance making. Neither kind of left-wing or right-wing populism can succeed if the elite uses its alliance-making power to divide the populist movement. So elite rule depends on manipulating and shifting alliances with non-elite groups, just like Israel's dominance requires manipulating and shifting alliances with uh, other countries, particularly in the Middle East. Same too with English dominance, right? Constant shifting and manipulating of alliances. So populism is an attack on pluralism, which is a threat to elite rule and to the political system as is. So let's contrast Marxism to populism. So for a populist, the cause of troubles is not the system as such, but the intruder who has corrupted it, financial manipulators, uh, politicians, bureaucrats. It's not a fatal flaw inscribed into the structure of society as such, but let's make America great again. Right, something's not playing its proper role within the structure. Now, for a Marxist or for a Freudian, the pathological, the deviating misbehavior of some elements of society is a symptom of the normal. It's an indicator of what is wrong in the very structure that is threatened with pathological outbursts. So the Marxist needs analysis. It needs a theory about the system. The populist only needs villains, such as the 1%. So populists will target the elite, but communism, leftism, is all about elite rule. So Zizek has a kind of left-wing anti-populism. And so from his perspective, what makes right-wing populism dangerous is that the villains it identifies include not only the elite, but groups that are excluded from the populist conception of the people. And therefore, populism undermines pluralism. You can have populism, you can have pluralism. You can't really have both. They're at war with each other. So the popular strategy must be to break the alliances of the elites with various subgroups and take those subgroups and absorb them into the people. So you reduce the power of pluralism 
And by doing that, you reduce the power of the elite and government as usual. So populism responds to the failure of the ordinary political process. Populism is hostile to business as usual. Political parties come between the people and the state. So political parties are an obstacle to electoral control by the people. Now, with the case of Donald Trump, the the people mounted a hostile takeover of the Republican Party and then of the country. So William Gladstone in 19th century England, he was able to go over the heads of the party leaders, speak directly to the people. The charismatic leaders often represent popular opinion and they tend to be impervious to the existing political order. The populism means accountability to the people, sometimes electoral accountability. Anti-populism means restrict accountability. And this is where the claim of expertise becomes relevant. Experts, by definition, not directly accountable to their people. They're accountable to their expertise or to the expert community. They are members of an expert class. They are part of an expert institution. So bureaucracies displace responsibility to rules that the bureaucracy interprets for itself. They conceal decision-making by distributing its elements to multiple officials, none of whom have complete responsibility. Therefore, officials are protected from personal liability for their actions. So expertise and bureaucracy have an elective affinity because it enables the rulers to avoid accountability to the people. So bureaucrats are an organization. Experts are an epistemology, but they unite to the same end. Epistemology, how do we know what we know? So concern and talk about the American administrative state, we would be told in the news media and academics now that this is some kind of form of right-wing paranoia, but the American administrative state was deliberately set out and created in late 19th century America by American elites who looked to Europe and admired the way its bureaucracies functioned. And European bureaucracies descended from royal bureaucracies, and so it was easy to integrate them when you had the rise of parliamentary democracies. So to the extent we have an administrative state today, that largely comes from royal bureaucracies. So the continental administrative state didn't have to be explained, it didn't have to be justified, it didn't have to make its case in relation to democracy because it existed prior to the many gradual steps toward democracy. Now, the American form of the democratic, uh, the administrative state had to be created through borrowing from continental models. So there was explicit analysis of the administrative state and its relationship to democracy And the American administrative state was particularly created as against the populist movement that arose in the 1880s in America in response to worldwide wheat price crisis, which coincided with the rapid expansion of cities, the world economy, the demand for capital created a crisis for credit that affected the capitalist world. So the claim that people had superior wisdom was an essential part of of populism from the very beginning. Now, there was an expert consensus on what was going on in the 1880s among U.S. economists and elites that we needed strong currencies, that we needed to hold by the gold standard, 
and we needed to stand firm against the radical expansion of the money supply. So the platform of the People's Party of 1892 said you should not crucify mankind on a cross of gold, right? It was an anti-elist social analysis. So silver had been accepted as coin since the dawn of history, but now it was being demonetized to add to the purchasing power of gold by decreasing the value of all forms of property as well as human labor. So the supply of currency is a bridge to fatten bankers, bankrupt enterprise, and enslave industry. This is the populist perspective. So a vast conspiracy against mankind has been organized on two continents, rapidly taking possession of the world, if not met, and overthrown. It forebodes terrible social convulsions, the destruction of civilization, and the establishment of an absolute despotism. So the aim of the populist movement in 1880s, 1890s America is to restore popular rule. To restore the government of the republic. So the populist movement aligned itself with the largest labor unions. And populists were opposed to unrestricted immigration and for the same reasons, right? Because it would reduce working class salaries. So National People's Party Platform 1892, we condemn the fallacy of protecting American labor under the present system, which opens our ports to the pauper and the criminal classes of the world, crowds out our wage earners, and we denounce the present ineffective laws against contract labor and demand the further restriction of undesirable emigration. So populism means gathering the people as a whole into one powerful force to overcome the current system, and the unity that comes from that tends to be quite skeptical of outgroups such as Jews and immigrants. So Paul Salad has released his documentary on Mersh, Mersh from Revenge of the Sith. Tatious gold watch and a snazzy dress suit, a real hit amongst his beat-up roster of $2 pole-grinding whores. But after just two years of full-time employment, he would be unceremoniously fired by the owner of Gold Club Tampa, Mike Tomkovich. With his newly acquired financial lifeline now severed, a panic-stricken Mersh would go on the legal offensive alleging that his firing was in fact a race-related whistleblower case due to his opposition of Tomkovich's discrimination against black employees. Mersh would claim that he was instructed to thin the herd of non-white dancers, adding that Tomkovich directed him to charge black entertainers up front to perform, while similarly situated Caucasian employees were not charged until after their performance. Mersh would even suggest that after hearing he had hired a black female to work the door, the club owner remarked, Fantastic, now I have an N-word door girl. All in all, the frivolity of this lawsuit represented some incredibly tribal behavior indeed just from a realistic perspective. Um, I don't buy any of this. So you're going to tell me the guy who's desperate to make it famous, right? Um, who is living in his mercury, uh, is barely scraping by, always begging for PayPal money, uh, you know, has to deal drugs to, for supplemental income, finally finds a stable position working at a place where he's a fucking manager. And he's going to be like, no, I'm not going to do that. Basically, I worked for a chain of clubs, uh, strip clubs, and uh, I was the chain manager. I was fired for political reasons. I was fired because uh, I basically there were I was being asked to do things that are illegal. And uh, anyone who knows me knows I'm a fucking soldier, dude. I don't have problems doing illegal shit for money. In this case, I was asked at a certain point 
to treat, uh, basically to thin the herd, so to speak, of my black and Hispanic employees. Uh, the impression that came from my owner at the time was that I had too many working for me and he didn't want to be that kind of club. So I was asked to, you know, basically partake in certain measures that were discriminatory that would cause these people uh, to not want to be there and to quit, uh, basically force them out the door. And because of my refusal to take part in that, uh, those policies, I was fired. Having now self-identified as an opportunistic snitch, Mersh would stake everything on the outcome of the Sheely versus SE Show Club's lawsuit. And with the defendant's motion to dismiss denied by Judge James S. Moody Jr., things were initially looking up for the embittered informants. And with a potential severance package of $637,000 on the table, the prospect of genuine life-changing money would no doubt have sent Merch into a full-blown ocular tailspin. However, after three years of bitter legal wranglings, the case was ultimately thrown out, leaving an exasperated Mike Sheely not only completely penniless, but with a well-deserved reputation as a litigious tattletale. And as for the fundamental question of whether the suddenly altruistic Mersh truly cared for the working conditions of black sex workers, or had simply sought a self-serving opportunity to leverage the alleged discrimination towards ethnic minorities into a hefty personal settlement all for himself is something we'll never truly know for sure. This is fucking with my mind. Again, he's ahead of the curve. So he's basically trying to cancel culture for racism. Maybe five or six years a little too early. Anybody that knows me knows I don't do illegal things. Said the dude that would post on Facebook about selling coke to gay guys. You all know me, Mr. Drive My Car Into The Wall, a drug dealer. When he made me do those mean things against those innocent black girls, that's where I drew the line. I uh, found out today that uh, my lawsuit was in fact thrown out by a federal judge. Uh, we were not given a trial. We were not given any of the things that were promised by the system that we believe in. Um, so yeah, it was uh, no trial, no jury, no nothing. Uh, just a federal judge who, or whatever, for one reason or another, didn't like me. So, needless to say, four years, a lot of fighting, and uh, on a whim, it's all gone. So, today's probably been one of the worst days I've had in years, finding out this news today. Uh, but I am, needless to say, in a bit of a jam right now. Uh, you, know, you do a whistleblower case like this, and you hope that after four years of fighting that you will at least get a chance to say your piece. Uh, I was not afforded that opportunity, but as a result, I now have to suffer from the, the repercussions of being known as somebody who's a whistleblower or a snitch or you know, or a litigious, litigious person. After three long years of watching his hairline gradually disappear behind the vista of his ever-growing scalp, the theoretical nest egg teeming with delusions of expected wealth had finally shattered. And with barely a hint of a reliable income stream on the horizon, it was back to the old drawing board for Mersh as he negotiated his next move. 
with the formidable weight of paying his own rent and utilities outsourced to his satanic sugar daddy Royce, Mersch was given the luxury to once again try his hand at performative comedy. And following the inception of what appeared to be his very own production company, he would commence work on stitching together a potential homemade TV pilot. Jobber would see Mersch get to live out his ultimate teenage fantasy, playing dress-up on camera as his favourite wrestlers. A six-minute promotional trailer poorly shot in Royce's living room would advertise itself as a comedic mockumentary based around the misadventures of amateur wrestling. Aside from the substandard production quality across the board, the pilot was seemingly lacking any sort of tangible script, leaving the so-called actors uncomfortably stumbling over one another in a scene not too dissimilar from your local Amdram society. Ultimately, as the centerpiece of his freshly established enterprise Killjoy Productions, this was an embarrassing mess for all involved. And despite Mersh creating yet another failed GoFundMe for this would-be abomination... Okay, that's uh, from the new Porcelain uh, documentary on Mersh from Revenge of the Sis. It uh, dropped this afternoon. Back to Stephen Turner. Now... Populists have a paradoxical attitude towards the state. On the one hand, they want an increase in government power, but they don't want the creation of an unaccountable administrative state. They don't want a massive bureaucracy. So they want government control of the railroads, but they don't want a massive institutional state running the railway. So this is contradictory. You want more government action without more power for the administration and the bureaucrats. You want less money in the hands of the state. But for populists, their suspicions of state power are foremost. So populists hold the money of the country should be kept as much as possible in the hands of the people. So populists want more direct electoral control. They want, wanted the popular election of senators. They, want the impos- they wanted the imposition of one-term limits of the president, the vice president. They wanted the secret ballot. So they wanted democracy requiring the maximization of electoral control of the state, and they wanted a state that was responsive to the demands of the people as expressed in voting with as little mediation as possible by professional politicians. Underneath this, at an epistemic level, you find rejection of the guiding expert opinions of the elite. So Woodrow Wilson, writing in the 19th and early 20th century as a professor, perhaps provided the quintessential intellectual articulation of this anti-populist thinking. So Woodrow Wilson made the argument that people cannot be trusted to perform certain tasks, such as voting for administrators, but the people can be led by expert opinion leaders, which will give the people the illusion of choice to allow them to accept what they are given, and the administrators can be given the actual discretionary power and a great deal of it under the fiction that what they do is not politics, it's just pure administration and that political choices determine the ends which administrators seek. Now, how do you justify this arrangement? Well, the people are stupid, and administrators possess knowledge, expertise, that the amateurs who get elected to the excessive multitude of democratic, democratically accountable officers, they just don't have the expertise. So the electoral process needs to be radically curtailed. It's corrupt. The people are stupid. So the vast number of political offices needs to be reduced, needs to be centralized. We need to eliminate local independent control. We, we need to replace that with administrators who can be trusted and can be accountable because their responsibilities will be defined despite the lack of an electoral method or any method 
but trust of holding the administrative estate accountable. So pluralism means that there is no people left. So people who want the administrative state want an increasingly pluralistic society. So we have become increasingly pluralistic since the 1960s. So there is less and less a people to challenge the ruling powers. There's increasingly less and less of a people to hold politicians and bureaucrats accountable. And the whole idea of democratic accountability, well, that just leads to corruption and incompetence from Woodrow Wilson's perspective. So all these hallowed political ideals, such as the separation of powers and the rule of law, well, they need to be discarded. Right? It's inefficient to have the courts and lawyers in a position to correct and supervise administrators. Administrators, government bureaucrats need a wide zone of discretionary power. Right, And, and they're going to save democracy from itself. So it's not the argument, we have the relevant expertise, we are prevented from using it by an ignorant public, therefore we need positions of authority which are free from electoral supervision and we can be trusted to use our powers correctly. But the argument is the public is ignorant, officials need to protect, be protected from the public and administrators can be trusted if they're given a free hand and they can develop the expertise to act. So it's an argument against the people Right? And this is not an argument that you can make openly. This argument needs to be disguised as something else. And the same to today with our elite discourse about democracy. So the disguise will come in the form of a variety of claims about inadequacies of the electoral process. So we need to limit electoral accountability, and this obviously clashes directly with populism. But the novelty with populism was that the case for the people no longer rested on the virtues of the yeoman farmer. Now it rests on the falsity of the beliefs of the elite, in particular with regard to the gold standard. So you would get elite rule on behalf of the people, which is very different from self-government. Right, this is the new model for saving democracy, is to reduce democracy. And so you have to invent a new class of people, administrators, who will be granted this vast discretionary power. So we need to, from the progressive leftist perspective, we need to limit electoral control of administration. We need to leave things to the experts. We need to replace those who can be elected and centralize power. So democracy requires homogeneity. Therefore, heterogeneity requires administrative power. So as our countries become less and less homogeneous, we have more and more need for independent bureaucratic power, less and less need for explicit democracy, right? So Woodrow Wilson complained, oh, we've got so many elective offices that even the most conscientious voters have neither the time nor the opportunity to inform themselves with regard to every candidate on the ballot. So they have to vote for a great many men of whom they know nothing. So therefore you get the local machine and the local boss where population crowds, interests compete, work moves strenuously and at haste, life is many-sided and without unity, voters of every blood and environment and social derivation mix and stare at one another at the same voting places. Government is confused, irresponsible, unintelligent, wasteful. Methods of electoral choice, which served us admirably well while the nation was homogeneous and rural, 
service oftentimes ill enough now that the nation is heterogeneous. So it's in the interest of the ruling class, it's in the interest of the ruling elites, it's in the interest of the administrative state to have a diverse nation, right? The more diverse, the more pluralistic, the less in common people have, the less power the people will have to interfere with elite rule. So democracy requires homogeneity, we're increasingly less homogeneous, so therefore we need less democracy. So representative government had a, had a long life, it had an excellent development, but now that we have a more diverse population, it's not going to work out so well. So the people on their own are incompetent. They're not capable of governing themselves. So we need to delegate authority to administrators who possess the expertise that is beyond the ken of the people. Now, these administrators, they need no supervision. Merely by, given, by being given responsibility and discretionary power, they will become paragons of neutrality. Without democratic control, without the interference of lawyers and courts, government will become efficient. We just need to give up democratic control, accept the pale substitute of trust, and democracy will be saved. The courts just need to invent doctrines that enable them to deny relief to those who are injured by the experts and the bureaucrats. And politicians need to pass political problems off to the experts. They need to pass politics off to the administrative states. And the experts need to claim and take questions out of politics with the tacit or with the explicit consent of politicians. We need to live in an age of neutralization. So we take more and more issues outside the realm of politics. So populism was caught in a practical contradiction. It wanted more government, but less bureaucratic power. The populists did not want to give up electoral control. So this is a classic problem, the conflict between liberalism and democracy. Democratic vote can eliminate the freedoms that are a condition of liberalism. So the wishes of the people may lead to practical contradictions. This is intrinsic to democracy. So democracy is a majoritarian system of rule. It inevitably favors majorities over minorities, whether these are minorities of interests, minorities of opinion, minorities of ethnicities. So... Much of the mythology of democracy means papering over these hard facts. Anti-populism, like liberalism itself, is essentially anti-democratic, but liberal anti-populism relies on liberal means, on the rule of law and on constitutional restrictions on the state to tie the hands of the people, to restrict the will of the people. The liberalism is based on fear of the people. Left anti-populism is anti-democratic. The more left you go, the more anti-democratic, the more you have rule by experts. So the left denigrates the people. They denigrate notions of false consciousness, misrecognition. So they are anti-democratic in the guise of anti-populism. But the guise is important because it allows anti-democratic ideas to be presented as saving democracy or true democracy or our democracy or protecting our democratic values and institutions. Right, this is the beautiful rhetoric that expands, that hides expanding the power of bureaucrats and administrators and experts and their discretionary power at the cost 
to the power and well-being of the people. So populists can break out of the constraints of experts and speak directly to the people. The point of anti-populism is to prevent appealing directly to the people, to restrict accountability. So pluralism and progressivism and leftism are essentially anti-democratic in the name of democracy. Hey everyone, hello from Colorado where it is spring, it's going to be 75 degrees today and then in three days we're going to get two inches of snow because mountains. Uh, today I wanted to talk about Ukraine from an economic point of view. Now all the strategic issue that has been in most of my updates stands. The Russians still need to plug those geographic gateways that allow access to their territory, so they still need to get all of Ukraine and then continue on. And the Russian population is still dying out, and this is their last chance to do so. All of that's true. All of that stands. But there's an economic issue underlying it that is worth exploring because it means that the Russians are going to be a little bit more brutal than they would otherwise need to be. Ukraine, in many ways, is like the American Midwest. It has a big river going through its most productive territory. So in the United States, that's the Mississippi, allows for all of the grain and soy-producing states to export their stuff at low cost out to New Orleans. In... Um, in Ukraine, it's the Dnieper. Uh, it serves the same purpose. Everything comes down the river and is ultimately repackaged at Odessa for shipment to the wider world. That means that from a, an American economic point of view, Ukraine makes sense. Uh, for Russia, though, it doesn't work that way. I've got this weird thing of hair right here. That... For Russia, it doesn't work that way. Uh, Russia only has one river that flows south. That is the Volga, and it dead ends in the Caspian Sea, which is a landlocked lake. The north-flowing rivers, the Obe, for example, uh, have a different problem. Uh, one, they flow to the Arctic, and no one lives there, so any sort of shipment is very roundabout. Two, in winter, the rivers flow from the mouth to the source rather than the other way around. And when your river is flowing into ice, it breaks up the ice, it pushes the ice ahead of it until there's too much ice, and then the ice gets, by its mere weight, gets pushed down to the river bed, and it forms an ice dam. Ice dams can last a long time, and you get massive floods as the river overflows its banks, and it does this in Russia every fall moving into winter, all winter long, and then especially in the spring melt, because then it melts from the source to the mouth instead of the other way around, and the water has nowhere to go. So most of the floodplains in most of the world are used for agriculture. In Russia, not necessarily, because it's a death trap. Uh, there's actually a bit of a competition among the folks in the Russian military about who gets to go out and use 500-pound bombs on the ice dams to try to free up the rivers. Now, what this means in the terms of the Russian Empire, and you do need to think of Russia as an empire, it expands, it expands, expands until it hits those gateways, and all the countries that it expands through are occupied peoples. That's, that's an empire. That's not a republic. That's not a democracy. It means that Russia knows that its internal distribution is crap, and Russia knows it can't sell any excess production to the wider world because it's hard to get it out. But Ukraine can. Ukraine is the most productive land in the Russian sphere of influence. They have huge agricultural surpluses, a fair number of metals, some coal, uh, other chemicals. And it can all get out easily. And once it's to the Black Sea, you can go to Turkey or through the Turkish Straits to Europe and the wider world. For Russia, it's never been that easy. So Ukraine has always been a territory that the Russians have grabbed onto very tightly. And now that Ukraine is making a reasonable go at being independent and maybe even doing well in the war, the Russians feel they have to destroy all of that. So the civilian infrastructure obliteration strategy that the Russians started about six weeks ago is, is continuing. Uh, we know that what happened in Bucha with the atrocities there have been replicated in at least 70 places and other places that the Russians occupy. They're in the process of doing that in Mirapol right now. 
the infrastructure is going to go. Because if the infrastructure goes, then a modern industrialized society can't exist. And ultimately, that is like a secondary goal for the Russians compared to the security stuff. But it's very, very much front of mind. Okay. That okay, question in the chat. Have I done stand-up? I think perhaps this is about the closest I came. Back in September 14, 2011. So I read about the sex industry for 12 years, met many interesting creatures during those 12 years, and I became the mainstream news media's go-to guy for commentary about what was going on in the sex industry. So I'd be interviewed on uh, 60 Minutes or uh, Entertainment Tonight. And uh, until about three years ago, I used Grecian formula, so that's why there's no gray in, uh, in the hair there. And that's uh, Jamie Lynn, the uh, Penthouse Pet of the Year 2006, right at trying to tempt me into sin right above me. So I was living a life where I'd, I'd go to an Orthodox shul in the mornings and I'd, I'd daven, I'd study a page of Talmud, and then I'd often go to a porn set and interview porn stars. And a lot of people thought that was kind of an incongruous life. And so a lot of people in uh, the Jewish community said to me, well, do you think you might be a sex addict? because they couldn't understand why anybody would want to write about such a industry. And other people said, do you think you might hate women? Because how else could someone immerse himself in the sex industry unless you really enjoyed the degradation of women? And I thought these comments were just you know, silly, and I, I just uh, totally dismissed them. But I found it was hard to date uh, nice Jewish girls while you're writing on the sex industry. Uh, I remember this one woman said, you know, I'd have to test you for every STD under the sun and wrap you in plastic and deep freeze you for a year, you know, before I could date you. So in uh, 2007, I quit writing on the sex industry and thought, oh, I'll just go back to writing on Orthodox Judaism. Because <laughs> they're, they're, they're similar, like they're these distinct subcultures, like highly suspicious of outsiders, think the outside world is there to get them. And... Uh, like, to me, it made perfect sense to write simultaneously about pornographers and orthodox rabbis who are sexual predators. But uh, So I was in therapy about five months ago, and I was talking to my therapist about what I want out of life. And my therapist said, that sounds like eroticized rage. And, oh, that's uh, Haley Rivers. I did date one porn star. That was after she left the industry. And I remember I was uh, talking to a friend... I was kind of concerned about one of the scenes that she'd done. It upset me. And, and my friend said to me, well, at least you know she isn't racist. <laughs> and it was about a, a couple of years ago. I was looking for a little solace one evening on the Internet. And, uh, you know, I found one of her videos. That was, uh, that's a really sick feeling. Like, she's a really sweet girl. And uh, so I was in therapy a few months ago. And uh, my therapist said, you know, it sounds like you have eroticized rage. And I'd never heard of the term eroticized rage, but as soon as I heard it, I immediately knew it was true. So my therapist explained that eroticized rage is anger that's been sexualized. So perversion is the erotic form of hatred, a sexual behavior that breaks the rules, and social disapproval, judgment, and shame are key to arousal taking place. So I realized in a very short time that basically all my fantasies are just a form of anger. And that, like, I was motivated in this, you know, vital, intimate arena 
by really dark stuff. So, you know, someone who is motivated by eroticized rage, you know, they have a rapist just under the surface, which was quite upsetting for someone who you know, was trying to be a mensch and, you know, practicing Orthodox Judaism. This was not the way that I wanted to see myself. But as I, as I read, the, the more I realized it was true. Like, for instance, whenever I was having sex with a woman, I would almost always have to close my eyes and I'd go in my brain to some perverse fantasy about some other woman than who I was with. Like the intimacy of keeping my eyes open during the act was too much for me. And if I actually kept my eyes open the whole time, I was unable to, uh, to do the deed. And uh, so I, as I read about this, I thought, you know, I might need to uh, go to 12-step programs for sex addiction. This, this might be uh, my problem. And so my therapist outlined, look, look at the pain in my eyes. See how empty I am. Like, you know, on the one hand, this is my 40th birthday, and uh, Penthouse sent like six pets over for my 40th birthday. And this is Crystal Klein, very erudite, reads a lot of books, doesn't mind getting naked, you know, a wonderful woman. But <laughs> as you look in my eyes, you can see like underneath all the fun and like you know, the, the sexual Disneyland, like, you can see how empty I was feeling inside. Okay, so now this is Bina. I've got to keep things on a really elevated level, so. So each of us has an arousal template. Like, there are certain things that turn us on. And, you know, for giggles, you might want to, like, one time just, like, write them out because all of us have a certain roadmap, and this roadmap to, to love or to to Eros, uh, is going to profoundly affect your, your dating uh, romantic decisions and, and many of your choices in life. Okay, that will do it for tonight. Bye-bye.